0: Welcome back to The Urban Monk. Dr. Pedram Shojay here. Happy to be podcasting. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to do. I get to hang out and talk to smart people and uh, share those conversations with you. My guest today, I met... Uh, I don't know, maybe 90 minutes during an interview a while back. Um, you know, some hotel in LA, the way we, the way we hook up our interviews, uh, he happened to be in town and we, uh, had the pleasure of getting to meet him, uh, for the series exhausted. That's coming your way in a little while. Uh, here's what I got to say about him. Uh, I meet a lot of doctors. I meet a lot of people. There's a lot of people out there flexing. There's a lot of people out there, you know, getting their lines down so they could get famous and saying the things that, you know, their people told them to say. Um, Who you're about to meet today is actually just a smart, smart man. Um, He knew a lot about everything we talked about and was just prolific and very interesting. Uh, Great conversation, and I know he's going to bring it today uh, because he's that guy. And plus, uh, as I met him, he was off to like go be on a boat for three months. So if he's not well rested by now, I don't know what's going to work. So (laughs) Dr. David Perlmutter, welcome to The Urban Monk.
1: I am totally delighted to see you and to be with you today.
0: Great to see you again and welcome back how how long were you on that boat for i know you said Actually, you and your four wife... months
1: we uh we left from bellingham washington and went to provision in vancouver canada worked our way through northern british columbia up the inside passage all the way up to the glaciers in alaska and uh just my wife and me you know our kids each visited for about a week and we had one couple that came for about four days, but the rest of the time, my wife and me. And it was, uh, it was an amazing experience in terms of solitude, in terms of disconnection from you know, the fast pace of our modern world that we're all uh, in deeply engaged in. Uh, and you know, having to figure things out each day and run a boat, it was, it was breathtaking
0: were you fishing daily? I mean is that where you came from?
1: Uh, You know sometimes we would have to make some tracks so we didn't fish on those days but pretty much we did fish most of the time or crab or um, prawn and I would say that I'm very grateful I put it next to freezer on the boat because when we finally finished our trip the end of summer that freezer was totally full and we were able just to pack all that stuff into a an insulated box and carry it home on the you know as checked luggage on the airplane so We actually are still having uh, halibut and salmon from the summer. Who knew?
0: Oh, man. Well, what a perfect segue into today's subject, because your brain's got a lot of good fat from a nice fishing expedition, and you brought some home. So we're talking about quiet. We're talking about solitude. We're talking about disconnecting. We're talking about good fish oil uh, and all sorts of other things that probably made your brain feel all right um, after a four-month expedition.
1: Yeah, feeling all right. Not feeling too good myself. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's it. That's it. So, I mean, look, you're you're an expert on the brain. Uh, there is so much to be said on this subject. We are just so wired and tired and frustrated and feeling like you know our lives aren't coming together. And a lot of that, I mean, you know, we can talk about the distinction between mind and brain and and, and what that is uh, to you. A lot of that comes from the brain and how we are feeding that sucker and how we are letting it relax and reset and detox and do all the things it needs to do so that we could actually think clearly. So before we jump into the the kind of the big overall subject, just a little history on how you got into this mess, uh, you you know, you, I think you were still rounding in a hospital when I when I met you, you know, last year or earlier this year or whatever. I mean, you're still actively engaged in medicine. Uh, so just give us a little bit about you.
1: Sure. Well, um, I've been actively engaged in uh, neurosciences since I was about... I guess I I wrote my first paper at 19 and gave my first lecture uh, at 20 to the American Heart Association Stroke Council in Dallas, Texas. I remember it was middle of winter and I wore a light blue suit and everybody was kind of wondering what that was all about. Uh, But at that point my research really focused on neuroanatomy and specifically microsurgical anatomy. How can we define the anatomy of the brain such that now that we were introducing the microscope into neurosurgery neurosurgeons could have a roadmap and uh, then I of course went to medical school did my residency and um, went out into the field and practiced uh, mainstream neurology in it which was very frustrating for me for 10 years and then finally left that practice and opened up my own clinic so I could begin to both explore and then implement uh, leading-edge ideas that were started to be published that related for example, lifestyle choices and how lifestyle choices could be leveraged in terms of both treating existing illness and certainly uh, preventing neurodegenerative conditions down the line. And in those days, and to, unfortunately to a certain extent these days, the idea that our lifestyle choices are uh, influential in terms of our brain's destiny uh, still remains a uh, an idea that is not well embraced by mainstream medicine and I say that because just two weeks ago I lectured to a very large group of mainstream practitioners and uh, I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity but It was certainly enlightening for me uh, to recognize how much more work there is to do in terms of getting the message out that you know the same parameters that influence cardiovascular risk, diabetes, cancer, uh, are operative as it relates to the degeneration of the brain. So you know, these fundamentals that we all kind of live and breathe in our world, inflammation, free radical mediated stress, etc and f- all the channels that lead into that, are absolutely front and center as it relates to the brain. Brain's not apart from the rest of the body. I think you were alluding earlier to a distinction between brain and mind. Well, if we stay on the brain for just a moment, it is part of the whole, you know. Despite what Descartes wanted us to believe in terms of, you know, isolated body parts, we know that the brain functions integrally. Uh, and when I say that in terms of its integration with the rest of the body, what affects part of the body affects the whole. Like Chief Seattle said, "Man did not weave the web of life; he's merely a strand of it." And so it is with the human body. That. You know, we just have, we have a book coming out tomorrow, a professional book called the microbiome in the brain. And when I say we have a book coming out, I'm the editor in chief. I didn't actually write uh, a chapter though. I wrote the introduction, but it relates. And I go through this bizarre relationship that we've had with microbes dating back to Semmelweis and washing your hands before you deliver a baby, Uh, this relationship you know, that uh, idea that all microbes are germs in the derogatory sense and therefore should be castigated to the world that we now live in that embraces this notion that we have this symbiotic relationship with most of our gut organisms, for example, whose activities are salubrious towards us, wanting to keep us alive, and that's been a long time coming to uh, to embrace that. So. These are the kind of ideas that began to nurture my practice techniques uh, to uh, allow me to feel comfortable with pushing the envelope and integrate ideas uh, into a neurology practice. You know, with with you and me talking about right now, the idea that um, neurology has been kind of the last uh, entry into at the party in terms of being able to embrace these alternative methods. You know. We've known for years that, well, cardiovascular health could be improved if we exercise and that bone density is better with weight bearing in women. All those things are kind of well entrenched and accepted. But the idea that physical exercise, for example, might benefit uh, a person's brain function and might help that individual be resistant to Alzheimer's disease, boy, that was a long time coming. And, you know, for the most part, uh, there's still a deep entrenchment into the old ways of the brain being looked upon as being isolated and it's such a disservice for um, you know the population at large. Um, there was a study that came out in December of 2017 published by the journal Neurology, one of our most well respected journals. And it was uh, practice recommendations for neuro- practicing neurologists um, for what you should do when you are confronted with a patient who has what's called mild cognitive impairment, which we now recognize is a pretty uh, reliable harbinger to future Alzheimer's. I mean, generally, if you are begin- if you're diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, I wouldn't say the die is cast but pretty much you know that uh, there's things on the horizon. The storm clouds are starting to accumulate. And they went through a whole list of 14 different interventions, including donepazil, memantine, various drugs that are common these days. And they only made one conclusion based upon available science. And that was that the only recommendation that I as a practicing neurologist could make with scientific uh, support is to tell that patient to take a supplement called exercise. That was the thing that the American College of American Academy of Neurology recommended. Now, I mean, I'm sitting down right now, but I would have to sit down after, uh, after making that statement to you because uh, number one, there was no drug that uh, has been validated, number two, they recommended a lifestyle intervention which is what they said all neurologists standard of care in America should be providing to their patients as a recommendation to help delay the onset of full-blown Alzheimer's to those who've already qualified for mild cognitive impairment. And uh, pretty amazing, and yet, and yet. Uh, that's not what's happening. You know here it comes from you know, the powers that be and yet mainstream neurology doesn't embrace that despite you know the sanction that it has gotten. So that's the practice that I developed over over the ensuing 25 years and uh, I really enjoyed it. I actually uh, stopped clinical medicine at this point and now am dedicating my time to public outreach. Uh, we have just completed a docu series on Alzheimer's prevention, oddly enough, with uh, a, a really in-depth review of diet, sleep, uh, meditation, uh, certainly exercise, and various other modalities that have a huge impact on the destiny of the brain. Uh, by me interviewing people from around the country, and you know, it's it's time to offer up a another way of looking at this problem a big problem in America affecting you know 5.8 million of us for whom it's pretty much a one-way street it's pretty much a, a die being cast and you know the economic impact is a quarter uh, trillion dollars in America right now for a disease that may well be preventable so you know even the economic impact if you don't want to embrace the notion that this is an emotional impact uh, for families, loved ones, and caregivers. Okay, let's look at the economic impact. So I actually presented all this information to the World uh, Bank, an International Monetary Fund, Washington, DC, and said, um, you know, aside from what it does to people uh, in terms of their families, uh, aside from what it did to me, um, holding my father as he died from Alzheimer's disease in my arms, what that Um, event was for me so I I get it what is the economic impact you know we talk about prevention of issues around the world it's not uh, infectious diseases that rank number one it's not trauma it's not war it is the chronic inflammatory degenerative conditions including Alzheimer's which may well rank number three as cause of death on the planet today but other things diabetes coronary heart disease cancer which are significantly affected by the lifestyle choices that we make. So, you know, that's been the motivation and that remains the motivation now in moving forward. Um, You know, what we identified mechanistically was that inflammation is playing this pivotal role. Not to fully castigate inflammation, we recognize perhaps another time we'll discuss the upsides of inflammation, an important process in the body. And uh, But it's the chronic amplification of inflammation through incredible number of pathways that seems to underlie the genesis of this cellular degeneration uh, that plays such a role in chronic degenerative conditions. Now, we are moving forward and recognizing that this same inflammation that underpins Alzheimer's, for example, underpins rewiring of the brain. And uh, this is where I hope our conversation goes today because it's been a revelation for both me and uh, Austin Perlmutter, MD, uh, our son, who was the co-author of our new book. The idea that inflammation is rewiring our brains and hence locking us more into functioning from more primitive brain centers like the amygdala, and at the same time disconnecting us from the prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain that allows us to consider the future consequences of our choices today, that allows us to be more compassionate and allows us to participate in something called empathy. What we identified is that inflammation is a cornerstone mechanism, and beyond that, another dot to connect is that diet through its huge influence on levels of inflammatory mediators in the body, is playing a huge role, that the Western diet being so pro-inflammatory, now spreading to all corners of the globe, is at the same time spreading inflammation and therefore changing the wiring of the global population towards a less empathetic, more us versus them mentality, Therefore, this dietary shift on the planet has existential uh, impl- uh, implications. So I, I think that that's the short answer to, <laughs> to your question, but uh, I've had a couple of cups of coffee and uh, have been there's thinking a- about our interview today. So there you go. Uh, awesome.
0: awesome. No, there, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, I'll, I'll go back and just hit on a couple points that I just don't want to drop before we jump into the existential implications for our society because I love where you're going. Um, one, neurologists typically are considered one of the highest depression and suicide rates in uh, medicine because they're really good at diagnosing and saying you know t- turns out after all this you know careful analysis and super science um, you know my paper here says you're screwed right and the implication that the journal landed on exercise as the number one intervention preventative measure versus some sort of complicated super science that's a that's an uncomfortable place for a lot of doctors to go. It's like, look, I went full circle for 40 years of my career to tell you that you should go work out. You came to me, it's like, you know, Hispanic patients come in, they like they need a shot, right? Because they need the doctor to do something. Uh, I think people tend to trivialize some of this lifestyle advice because it's like, ah, come on, I came to you for something really smart and, you know, I came to you for some big words, right? And now here we are, full circle, saying you need to exercise, you need to eat better, and and the fate of the world depends on it like it's it's just such an interesting inflection point not just for the profession which is trying to find itself in all of this because it's it's used to trying to sound smart and you know come up with you know big interventions or there's some machine or some device that's supposed to fix this not uh, you know push-ups and so all that all that has gotten you to where you're at and it's pulled you out of clinical science into being a, a, a voice and writing books and getting out there and talking about this stuff, which is absolutely to me the most important part, the the root of the word doctor, is to teach. And That's here the... you are. And here you are. Now you're carrying this message and carrying it out to the people. So I, first question, let's go back to the gut microbiome and the vagus nerve and what we know about how this gut dysbiosis is jumping up node by node and getting to the brain. We could prevent and predict all kinds of things based on what we're seeing in the gut. And it's just, it's revolutionizing everything, isn't it?
1: Well, it is. I mean, uh, in, in the most broad sense, I think that we certainly recognize that the gut and the goings on in the gut Uh, play a very important role in regulating this process of inflammation through a number of mechanisms through uh, direct metabolic products and also through the maintenance uh, efforts of our gut bacteria as it relates to gut permeability going through the notion that um, you know, increased permeability allows the transgression of things like uh, lipopolysaccharide, which then induces uh, upregulation of inflammatory mediators, and uh, you know that's an important role of of, of gut bacteria. So uh, you know, I, I think we can go through a lot of these, but but just that, uh, and and perhaps also uh, we should certainly touch upon the idea that. Uh, you know, the, the diversity and functionality of our gut bacteria are recognized now as playing important roles in uh, metabolism. Uh, that there are profound changes that are associated, for example, with type 2 diabetes to the extent that there's been some success in actually treating uh, type 2 diabetes on, uh, with people who've undergone fecal microbial transplant. But, vis-a-vis our discussion, we recognize that even subtle elevations of blood sugar getting back to the gut and its role in regulating same. Even subtle elevations of blood sugar, as described in 2014 in the New England Journal of Medicine, September, uh, are associated with increased risk of of becoming demented. So uh, this is an interesting study that followed folks for, I believe it was 6.7 years, about 3,000 individuals. And the only test they did on the front end was a simple fasting blood sugar. That's it. Go about your life, uh, come what may, come back in five years, seven years, whatever, we're going to reassess you cognitively and see if we can draw some correlations. And what was demonstrated was that, you know, even a blood sugar of 105 now begins to be associated with increased risk for a situation for which there is no treatment, and that is dementia. Uh, at least no treatment uh, offered up in mainstream medicine. So. Uh, When we see correlations, for example, between hemoglobin A1c and rate of uh, brain atrophy, as well as these studies that look at um, correlation of uh, fasting blood sugar to downstream uh, issues with respect to cognition, it can point back to uh, gut bacteria. Uh, We understand that uh, dramatic changes happen to the gut bacteria in terms of their diversity, and when I say diversity, I mean resilience so correlation of of diversity to resilience uh, with even things like artificial sweeteners what a fraud to perpetrate on the global population that yes uh, we've now learned that sugar is bad therefore use uh, sucralose or saccharin I mean studies from Israel for example and France have demonstrated that uh, you know there's a significant increased risk of weight gain as well as significant increased risk for t- developing type 2 diabetes in those individuals who consume these artificial sweeteners, and yet, hey, I'm drinking this diet drink because it doesn't have sugar. Uh, it, it, you know, that type of stuff. I do my very best to bring that out. You know, I'm going to pass that information on to you. Now we come upon the, uh, the the challenge, and that is, what do you do with that information as a consumer? And you know, that gets to making choices, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, you know, so we understand then that the, uh, the gut bacteria, the microbiome we call it, when we consider both, well, uh, the metabolites as well as the genetic material as well as the actual organisms as cells, their important role in regulating things like insulin insulin sensitivity. Uh, blood sugar, uh, blood-brain barrier permeability, the production of excitatory neurotransmitters, um, their production of important short-chain fatty acids, meaning how, you know, when we extrapolate what these short-term fatty acids do, short-chain fatty acids do uh, in terms of uh, gene expression. So, wow, what a concept that our gut bacteria are playing a role in regulating our genome you know, this legacy that we've gotten from mom and dad and all who have come before are being, are interacting, it's a bi-directional communication, are interacting with our gut bacteria and this relationship has, has been ongoing for a million years, suddenly, suddenly we dramatically shift one side of this equation by altering our gut bacteria or we dramatically shift the other side of the equation. The output from the brain that can affect the gut bacteria. How do we do that? One powerful way we can do that is by increasing cortisol levels, both acutely and in terms of long term, by being engaged in things like chronic stress, uh, not getting uh, restorative sleep and even depriving ourselves of exposure to nature. All of these things increase cortisol and that's the other side of the coin that we need to consider. changing, uh, Increasing cortisol, or cortisol over a long period of time, changes the diversity, increases permeability and as such is a, creates this feedback loop whereby increased levels of inflammation then ultimately lead to increased uh, problems that then can increase increase, uh, increase cortisol. By that I mean, when we increase inflammation, it compromises our ability, as I mentioned earlier, to make good choices. We become more impulsive, and that has to do with our lifestyle choices, our food choices, for example. We uh, Food that has higher caloric density, less nutritional density, and as such we gain weight. When we gain weight, that increases the production of inflammatory mediators and in addition will cause us to experience less restorative sleep. Less restorative sleep increases inflammation, increases cortisol and these are very dangerous self-propagating feedback loops that ultimately uh, go to a place that we don't want to go to and uh, so you know, what we want to focus on is how do we break those loops to allow people to finally regain control, uh, as we've described many times, uh, how we can bring the adult back into the room. So, lots of ways that, uh, you know, we, we've been exploring this relationship of the gut bacteria uh, to the brain. We know that they are involved in what is called amyloidogenesis, the genesis of, of amyloid protein. Uh, the production of TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, that has been related to uh, things like cardiovascular disease and does have some brain uh, brain implications as well. The metabolism of choline and carnitine to TMAO. So lots of things that we consider then uh, in terms of this bidirectional, very important, that we stress that relationship. You had mentioned the vagus nerve. I mean that's one one channel by which there is direct uh, moment-to-moment influence uh, of the gut from the brain. And now, how exciting it is to learn that, that this uh, cuts both ways, uh, that it may well be, for example, that this alpha-synuclein misfolded protein that characterizes Parkinson's disease may actually make its way to the brain through the vagus nerve, the superhighway, the vagus, uh, the vagabond, as it were and as such, be related, uh, relate the gut and the brain. You know, for so many years, and seeing Parkinson's patients, so many gut complaints, and we thought, oh, that's interesting, but can't have any relevance. Yeah, like we did with with, uh, autism. Oh, well, that's interesting, but no relevance there. Look, as it relates to autism, how this relationship between changes in diversity and various species and more importantly the metabolic products of the gut bacteria uh, are now being looked upon as having a uh, primary uh, role to play in the neurological manifestations of that situation. It's amazing. Uh, It really truly is. Uh, well, real, real quick, a study done by University of Arizona, collaborative study with Harvard doing fecal microbial transplant on 20 autistic children showing significant improvements both in their gastrointestinal uh, issues as well as some neurologic problems as well. So that relationship is so profound and from my perspective, what an amazing opportunity that our playing field has been so widened that uh, we have all these new tools in the toolbox that look at diet, that look at exercise. We know that there's an increased diversity of gut bacteria in people who engage in exercise. That study actually looked at uh, cardiorespiratory function uh, and correlated higher cardiorespiratory function as a manifestation of exercise with higher levels of gut diversity, bacterial diversity. So. We know that there are changes associated with sleep uh, and, you know, it goes without saying and now I'll say it. Why do people say it goes without saying and then they say it? But it it goes with saying that certainly diet is front and center. So the role of diet in brain health uh, is just beginning to take off and I'm thrilled uh, just to be sort of in touch with this information. Yep,
0: I want to talk about the elephant in the room because this, to me, is—I mean, this is the bitch of it all—and it's just—it's this funny thing: this, these, these negative feedback loops, and this self-fulfilling prophecy that doesn't need to be. I mean, we're talking about higher moral reasoning and empathy, prefrontal cortex. We're talking about negation of impulses, saying no to the cheesecake, um, saying no to the couch and the TV, and getting out on the treadmill or going for a hike and doing all the things that we know will fix it. Are also part the problem so when we are eating a certain way not exercising and doing the things that you know like consuming sugars that are feeding the bad microbes we are diminishing our brains ability to power the part of the brain that allows for us to make the better lifestyle choices right so how do we pierce this because so many people listening right now are like man I tried exercising I tried the damn New Year's resolutions it's so hard to say no to the cheesecake how do I get in doc like like how how do I get a foot in the door to at least stand a chance?
1: Let me first say uh, this is something I probably should should save to the end, but I'm going to say it right now. Thanks for having me, by the way, uh, because I'm really enjoying the line of questioning. And I don't know how many people will listen to this, but it's it just it's great to have this conversation with you. But you awesome. know, uh, it's good to here. say things when you want to say them. And, and uh, anyway. Uh, There's a line out of a Joni Mitchell song. It says, tears and fears and feeling proud to say, I love you, right out loud. You know, we need
0: to say (laughs) it, but anyway. Well, thank you, and it's an honor to have you.
1: Yeah, I'm having a good time here. Um, I think you raise a very important point. Uh, And uh, I believe that it doesn't matter where you choose to jump on the carousel that if there's anything you can do to reconnect to the prefrontal cortex, that will then make the next decision slightly or significantly easier. Uh, so you identify where you believe is your, your biggest uh, challenge, whether it's you've got an aura ring and you realize you're not sleeping well, or your wife or husband tells you, hey, you you stop breathing at night, Uh, or you know darn well that you don't exercise like you should or it's pretty clear you're not eating well or you're not spending any time out of doors or you really have sort of given up on connecting with other people or you are like uh, most Americans spending an awful lot of time in front of one screen or another the average American spends more than six hours a day in front of a screen which you know you take that out over a lifetime that's 22 years of screen time and we can discuss the implications of that but certainly one implication is uh when you're doing one thing you're not doing something else you're not doing the other things that i just talked about so we're all in for uh even one or two uh idea ideas to to get the ball rolling and uh whether it's uh you know paying attention to your sleep uh and that might mean going and having a polysomnogram uh, and seeing what the sleep specialist tells you, whether you have sleep apnea, uh, what is your amount of time slept in, uh, spent in deep sleep, are you activating your lymphatic system and helping purge your brain of metabolic waste, uh, what is your sleep latency, uh, what is your heart rate variability during sleep, all these things I think are really important. How much REM time are you getting? Uh, I think uh, you know, It's a lot easier to determine how much time you're spending exercising and uh, You know 95% of American adults do not get 30 minutes of exercise a day despite the recommendations to the contrary uh, You know like we talked about earlier in terms of being able to, to reduce the progression of MCI to Alzheimer's well, how about reducing the risk Uh, from normality into MCI, or from normality into cardiovascular disease, uh, or from normality into a state of higher inflammation and higher cortisol. All of those things are benefited by exercise. They're also benefited by nature exposure. And, uh, you know, uh, 87% of of Americans' time is spent indoors and 6% more is spent in a car. It doesn't leave much time for reconnecting with nature and experiencing the benefits of that activity. And, you know, people will say, oh, I don't live near a park or I can't go to Yellowstone this weekend. You know, exposure to nature could mean putting a houseplant in your kitchen or taking it to work or even a photograph of a natural environment changes moment to moment the way that your brain is is operating. There's, if I may digress for just a moment, an interesting study I uh, took a group of, of 30 individuals and um, it challenged them while they were uh, undergoing a functional MRI scan with various types of, of pictures of environments and demonstrated that uh, having, uh, looking at a, a scene of nature versus an urban environment lit up the amygdala we can call it perhaps the fear center in different ways we know that uh decision making after just looking at a picture of nature versus looking at an urban environment is uh is altered to the extent that a more impulsive decision making to a significant degree is fostered by looking at that urban environment and how the Uh, This is what's called delayed discounting, where they give people the idea that, look, you can get uh, $10 today or $100 today, what do you choose? Well, I'll choose the $100. Okay, how about a week from now? You can get $10 or $100. Pretty much everybody says, "I I can wait a week. But when we pull that out to a year, two years, five years, what would you do at that period of time? Just showing people pictures of the urban environment locks them into that impulsive $10 decision, whereas the people who simply looked at pictures of nature were locked into a better decision-making paradigm, activating the prefrontal cortex, and making a decision that considered long-term consequences. you know, this is what we're looking
0: at now. I mean, it's breathtaking, isn't it? I, I, it's just, it's staggering to think about the decisions that people are making in their day-to-day life and under duress, you know, just too many rats in a cage, under duress and what that does to the rest of their timeline based on the moment in time, the inflection point of just the level of stress that was there. A walk in nature, sitting and meditate, just these things that we know will ultimately change the trajectory of your entire life if you did them. And they're so simple, they're just missing.
1: You know, I really, really hope to get through to your listeners that this is so darn important that our decision-making ability has been hacked. We don't suffer these days from lack of information, right? You know, everybody's bought all the books. Everybody's seen the... public television programs listen to the podcast we know generally what makes for good food choices we know that we should exercise we know that sleep is important although not as many people value that and the issue is not really so much getting the information or in your case giving out the information it is action and what we want to what we've addressed in our new book, Brainwash, is providing the bridge then between information and action. I mean, how many people make these New Year's resolutions and ah, this is what I'm gonna do, and, and yet next year it's time to make the same resolution all over again. And you know, I, I don't wanna sound uh, um, like a conspiracy, a conspiracy theorist, but there are active attempts out there to hack into our decision-making uh, ability. Uh, and these hack into, you know, some of our uh, survival uh, instincts. Like our one survival instinct that we all carry is our desire for sweet, you know. And let me walk through that because very quickly people are saying, "Well, how could that be a survival instinct?" Well, sweet, in our hunter-gatherer days, uh, provided our forebears information that that particular food, food fruit, uh, was ripe had its highest level of uh, nutritive uh, content. Uh, Not that they were thinking that, but they just catered to their sweet tooth. But interestingly, when fruit tends to ripen, at least wild fruit, it's kind of late in the summer, early in the fall, and suddenly we're getting a a sugar blast that's turning on our production of insulin, which does what? Allows us to, to make and store body fat. So guess what? Those people who had that adaptation gene sweet tooth survived because we lay down a layer of fat and then we were able to survive during times of caloric scarcity Um, so that is an entry point then for production of call it food if you will that uh, you know the 1.2 million foods sold in America's grocery stores over 60% have added sweetener why again to hack into that When we consume foods higher in sugar, it changes our gut bacteria, it changes our metabolism. Ultimately, that leads to blood sugar going up, increased body fat, and we're back to where we started, higher levels of inflammation. That, again, hack into our ability to make these good choices, so we're gonna continue to eat those foods. Um, You know, another interesting entrance point is man is a social animal we survived ostensibly not because we were loners but because we were better off working in groups and had division of labor and we could cover each other's backs and look out for each other. Well now that is this desire has been hacked into by what is called uh, social media and unfortunately we recognize that those relationships on social media are not Doing what the in person eye contact, uh, olfactory stimulation, microbe sharing relationships do to a human being. Uh, so, in many ways, social media is anything but, but yet, uh, you know, we, we recognize that despite social media and despite the number of rats in the cage, to use your uh, metaphor from earlier, uh, we are lonelier than ever. You know, 42% of Americans report. Uh, significant feelings of loneliness and less than 50 percent indicate that they have any meaningful in-person relationship contact uh, on a daily basis so that's that's a disservice to us we need each other when we foster to an amygdala based behavior set it tends to foster with other brain uh, uh, anatomical regions as well but maybe more importantly, when we disconnect from the prefrontal cortex, it tends to foster an us versus them mentality. And we can't, we can't continue that. It, it's not going to allow us to survive. Uh, if it's us versus them, we disregard our neighbors, we disregard our communities, we disregard our planet, and it, moving forward, that's not sustainable so um, that is this existential consideration with respect uh, to what we call disconnection syndrome so we are disconnecting from the prefrontal cortex and we take disconnection syndrome a a lot further disconnecting from each other disconnecting from the messaging of our genome shutting off gene expression that has kept us able to survive while amplifying genes that were probably fairly dormant in the past but are now You know, just getting are just wide open and increasing uh, inflammatory mediator production while shutting off antioxidant production, compromising um, glutathione S transferase, our ability to deal with toxins, for example. We need to amplify those gene pathways by regaining our connection to this powerful epigenetics that we are blessed with jump right in by eating cruciferous vegetables, for example, and reducing our consumption of, of refined foods. So, you know, that cruciferous vegetable pathway through the activation of what we call the NRF2 pathway, hugely powerful to allow us so many good things uh, to happen and not the least of which is uh, reducing inflammation, allowing us to connect to that part of the brain that defines us as human beings.
0: You know. Um, if I may, there's, there's another logical extension to what you're saying is, as the life and the, the, the will to live and the ability to function from higher cognitive centers is diminished. And we'll talk about this in a second. Um, It also extends to global pollution. It also extends to pesticide use. It also extends to the extinguishing of life all around us because the part of us that makes us feel alive, that helps us understand who we are in this web of life is being cast down upon by this dark cloud of unconscious behavior that we feel like we're out of control of. And so look, for every one David Perlmutter, there's about 100 neurologists that are consulting with companies that want to know exactly how the amygdala works to sell you their shit, right? Industry is using neurology because we don't stand a chance. The circuitry that drives our survival, I mean, man, that is hardwired in for so many millennia, and we have been exploited to consume sugars, to think I need a Toyota truck because I need to be a man, I need to buy this survival gear because they're coming to get me, all this messaging, none of this is... Arbitrary. There's a lot of science that's gone into this, and there's been a lot of science for sale. And so if you don't understand how to get yourself out of the trap, if you can't spring spring the trap and eat some broccoli and wake up to the higher centers of your brain, you're being manipulated by the lower centers, by the marketing messaging that makes you feel inadequate, that makes you feel like you need to do this thing to survive. I need the 10 bucks right now because the world is collapsing and around me. You can't make long-term decisions that will be better for you and your family and i mean this is this is an existential dilemma but it starts with every choice you make right no one is putting the cheesecake in your mouth i mean, I,
1: I, i think uh people have no idea the extent uh to which the science is involved here in your brain manipulation uh it's you know, you can, uh, for your product that you want to bring to market you're trying to figure out which advertisement, what angle is going to be best you know, it used to be, well you you did what was called a focus group and you asked for their opinions after you know, should uh, we use this color, what about this music and how do we target people now it's functional MRI and it's recognition of how you can light up those areas of the brain that are involved in impulsivity and making quick decisions Uh, And reward circuits being activated based on the messaging around your product that might be You know a a lamp or a chair who knows what but yet that's the level of Manipulation of people's brains. It is Orwellian as can be and concerning as can be And I would say that job one uh, that that we wanted to tackle in brainwash is calling it out because I think being aware that this is happening right off the bat uh, is huge, because most people don't know it's it's operating in the background, but it is pervasive and it is effective and it is growing in its utilization. That uh, you know you can have access to functional MRI now. Uh, if you want to sell a product, you can, There are companies that'll say, "Yep, you know, just uh, we'll get a group of people, we'll do fMRI, and we'll present them with various challenges and see what works." yowza that that's scary business but uh you know as christian lang nobel prize winner said in 1921 that technology is a useful servant uh, but a dangerous master and i want to be clear that i am not and we are not austin and i uh, are not anti-technology i mean we um we wrote this book based upon access to an unlimited repository of information the internet but, uh, you know, we recognize this degree of manipulation that's happening to us with our online uh, experiences that, uh, you know, are, are captivating uh, for people. Let me read a quote from a Tristan Harris, uh, who uh, was a, what was called a Google design ethicist. He said, once you know how to push people's buttons, you can play them like a piano. I don't want to be played like a piano, but I think knowing that that stuff's going on in the background, uh, is at least is job one. And you know, then later what we describe in brainwash is okay, what do you do about it? And you know, one of the things we developed is, is the test of time and time being an acronym for T time. How much time are you willing to dedicate to what it is you're attempting to accomplish on your online experiences? Uh, is it answering the email? Is it looking up? Uh, a pathway of metabolism or trying to figure out what uh, type of paint you're going to paint your walls whatever it may be how much time you're going to allocate to that i is it intentional is your online experience intentional are you focused on that goal or are you suddenly being distracted by clickbait down a rabbit hole into a uh, into oblivion and suddenly 2 hours go by m is it a mindful experience while you're engaged in your online experience are you aware of what's going on do you remain mindful and finally E is that experience enriching is it a positive experience when you're done with what you attempted to do online are you net positive or did you get distracted and ended up buying crap online that you didn't need because you that made you momentarily feel better and um, you know, and you were, uh, ads popped up to tell you that you weren't good enough, you weren't thin enough, rich enough, pretty enough, whatever it may be, and there was suddenly uh, further uh, advertising for a way to fix that problem. Were you captivated by that? So, we call it the test of time. And again, we're not luddites. We're not uh, anti-tech. You know, I love tech. Look at look what you and I are doing right now. We're on this tech right now. Be, yeah. If it weren't for technology. But, uh, again, it's a... Um, it's a a useful servant, but a dangerous master. And I think we have to take a step back and say, whoa! Six hours a day, the average American, uh, you know, in in uh, the adolescent, uh, excessive time showing uh, magnetic resonance imaging changes in the brain, including uh, less connection through the corpus callosum of the right and left hemispheres. Yowza! I mean, um, again, it doesn't have to be this way. And, we start a conversation with looking at those entrance points. Okay. Let's talk about your sleep. For example, let's, let's, if you don't exercise, let's say five minutes a day, anybody can commit to that. Uh, let's, if you don't live, uh, you know, out in, in nature, maybe there's a park nearby. One recent study showed that people who are urban dwellers who got out to the park, when you measure their salivary cortisol levels had a dramatic reduction immediately in their stress hormone just by getting to the park and have maybe maybe you go there and meet somebody. Maybe you have your lunch there each day from work. Or even if you can't get out, you put a plant, as I mentioned earlier, in your in your home been demonstrated that even having plants in a, a hospital waiting room is associated with a pretty dramatic reduction in stress as measured by various parameters including cortisol levels so it, it's, it doesn't matter where you want to jump on uh, you know it's uh, the most important part about reaching your goal is getting started and as soon as you gain just a foothold in 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 regaining uh, your ability to make good decisions, that will then be a feed forward process. We hope that allows you to make better and better decisions moving forward.
0: Let me let's talk about uh, particular. We're running to running out of time here, but I definitely want to cover this last subject here. It's something near and dear to my heart, helped me a lot in my life. Is this. called meditation these mind body practices um there's studies out there that show nf kappa b i mean just reduction of major inflammatory pathways and genetic expression just by learning how to chill out and everyone i talk to is like well you know i don't know i tried meditating it didn't work it's like i said i tried downhill snow skiing once and it didn't work you got to practice it right and once you practice it you get better at it and then the rewards are there um There are things out there like walking out in nature, putting a plant in there, meditating, doing mind-body practices that have tremendous value in jumping in and hacking into this circuitry that's kind of in a downward spiral and stopping you. And in my clinical practice, and I've been out of practice for about four or five years now... The patients that would take on a mind-body practice were the ones that had unbelievable results and the ones that just kind of stayed in their humdrum and did a couple recommendations but, you know, just wanted to insist on living the life as they as they were living it, they did okay, right? So let's talk about this type of intervention. I don't care what mind-body practice it is, whether you're doing yoga or praying or whatever. What do we know about it, Doc? Well,
1: first, that last sentence uh, was, uh, was very enlightening that it, uh, you know, it, there are a lot of practices out there and there's pretty much uniformity in terms of what they do with respect to the brain. Uh, Andrew Newberg uh, has done some terrific uh, research uh, demonstrating on pretty sophisticated brain imaging that there is lighting up of the prefrontal cortex. That's what we want. There's lighting up of the part of the brain that lets us be compassionate and empathetic and allows us to make decisions based upon conceiving how they may play out in the future for ourselves and for others. So it it really, uh, you know, those are some pretty compelling uh, studies. Uh, And at the same time, what we know is that these practices distance us from relying on the amygdala uh, an area of the brain that really is involved in impulsivity and making decisions, you know, without consideration of their future uh, consequence. So, you know, that's what the research shows. In addition to, as you mentioned, uh, its role in the looking at things like NF kappa B activation, uh, measurements of inflammatory markers, measurements of cortisol. It may take as little as 12 minutes a day, and as mentioned, uh, it may not really be that fundamental uh, what that type of practice uh, is, uh, but I mean, the long-term benefits are are vast. When we look at actual uh, studies that, that are able to determine not just that the amygdala has been calmed down, but the degree that it's been calmed down by mindfulness practices, they're pretty dramatic, and Uh, You know, it it, it might not be uh, that people are going to necessarily, you know, have a a strong uh, feedback uh, to recognize that things are happening. It's not like uh, going on a diet and losing 10 pounds. Hey, I can go to the next belt loop or whatever it may be. There is some uh, faith that people have to have that this is really powerful stuff. And it is. So, uh, you know, it's extremely convincing science, and I think that the more people hear about this, uh, the more we'll embrace it. But you are correct that it it is, you know, you you brought up uh, downhill skiing, and uh, you are apparently a a pretty good skier, from what I understand. And that didn't come to you uh, overnight. It sounded like you went out there, and the next day, there you were. What the Dalai Lama told us is the brain we develop reflects the life we lead. And uh, to be more scientific about that, you know, Dalai Lama has done some incredible research into uh, neurosciences and specifically neurogenesis and most importantly into this notion of neuroplasticity. Uh, But, you know, it, it plays upon this notion of neuroplasticity that neurons that fire together ultimately wire together as you developed your snow skiing skills. You did that because you kept activating those pathways. That's the same process that's involved in meditation ultimately, though it transiently connects us to the prefrontal cortex, that ultimately becomes much more indelible. So we can live that more enlightened life and actually be more compassionate beings by engaging in in this practice of meditation. We're gonna amplify that pathway. And another quote from the Dalai Lama is, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. So by um, practicing acts of compassion, and and I'm going to add to that gratitude, we amplify when, you know, even during our non-meditative times, we amplify this connection to this prefrontal cortex that allows us to take a step back and not be locked into instantaneous response of of responding to people tweeting immediately that uh, somebody said something I'm going to tweet back and you know uh, you, you've been involved in martial arts and let me give you a, a, an interesting metaphor here because perhaps others of your listeners can relate to this. It's really the difference between block and counterpunch that <laughs> those of us who studied martial arts would practice hours on end blocking the incoming uh, strike and then counter right? To deflecting and moving on. And and that is uh, a conscious appreciation of what's going on and realizing uh, that there's really no sense in engagement and moving on. We've all had these experiences where we're caught up in traffic or somebody says something to us or we get a, a one uh, on uh, a review of a book we've written, for example, and it's totally off base but it's it's really getting to a place of being okay with that's how the world is my mission here is to is to see it in the best possible light I possibly can and and then try to make it better so um, I, I'm hoping that metaphor resonates with some of your listeners but I, I really think it's something that if we can all embrace for just a moment uh, I think it'll have some positive outcome
0: amen amen there's so much to be said for the way we're living our lives and the reflection of the world around us if you're complaining about the world around you look within start to find the resilience start to find the inner Aikido um, and 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 you know and block and parry and eventually just not even have those situations unfold as you get better at it right I mean I'm just more sane when I meditate I'm more I'm gonna go downhill skiing as soon as we're off this this interview like I moved up to a I moved up to Deer valley because that's my that's my drug of choice. I love doing these things and they help me make better decisions. So if you're finding yourself making not so great decisions, if you're finding yourself having a hard time stepping in and doing what you know is better for you, you got to fix your brain. And we've talked about a lot of it here. Um, look, your new book is amazing. I highly recommend it's called Brainwash. I highly recommend anyone who's listening to this, go get the book right now, read the book, and then just do one thing in it, right? Uh, you know, if you're looking for the time to meditate, just look at your screen time and take away 25% and there's your meditation, there's your nature time. There's so much time wasted and there's so many wonderful things that you can do that are recommendations in the book that will turn things around for you. The moral of the story is you have to do something. You have to step in to not be a victim of this kind of neurology pilfering of your consciousness, right? Like we are being mined by the marketing industry. We are being mined by industry and our lives are just being pilfered. You want your life back? You need your brain back, pure and simple.
1: I would, uh, I I so agree. And uh, you know, I think that one of the things that we gain from this further connection to the prefrontal cortex and other areas of the brain, the anterior cingulate is the ability to experience what is called cognitive empathy to see things from another person's perspective and that is so uh, absent from uh, the agora today uh, the you know the interaction that we see uh, of people that uh, people dig their heels in you know it's uh, Republicans v Democrats uh, and they're wrong I'm right etc and it, it that's not sustainable we've got to be able to, look at the world from another person's perspective that's how we move the ball down the field that embraces diversity of ideology and as I mentioned earlier as it related to the gut bacteria diversity begets uh, resilience that's how we become more resilient and we make progress so uh, you know as opposed to simply going on those social media sites that continue to fan the flames of our entrenchment in one specific ideology, and at the same time uh, castigate other idea, other ideologies. That that's not productive. It's not positive, and it just creates, it just fosters an us versus them mentality. And we're we need to be done with that. We need to bring the adult back into the room, and embrace others' ideas embrace that we have a beautiful relationship with our planet and uh, we have to step up to the plate as it relates to that. Um, and I'd say, importantly, it's just time to take a deep breath and, um, and be so appreciative of what we have uh, and, and, you know, and, and avoid the pervasive negativism that is put upon us the more that negativism is perpetrated upon us, the more it locks us into functioning on a less sophisticated level. I want to be uh, at, at the end of our conversation now. I want to be so positive in where this can go. I'm so hopeful. Amen.
0: We're talking about resilience. We're talking about life. Life wants to be lived. Life wants to express. Life wants to grow. Life makes you laugh, right? Life has a joy that that, that is an underlying energy underneath it. And when your systems are working correctly and your brain is working correctly, you're just a delightful person to be around. Um, and look, if I want to read a book. I want to read the book of someone who's read all the books and done the work, but then taken four months to sit on a boat and listen to the waves. Someone who will take the time and breathe and someone who will allow for the information to percolate and and, and cook in a soup and come back with a synthesis that, that has been examined and explored. I don't need more information. I need more wisdom. So thank you for taking the time to sit with it and coming back with wisdom. Um, I really appreciate uh, my conversations with you. And I, look, you're always, invited back I, I i love your message and i love what you're doing out there
1: Pedro. thank you for that and uh i'm so glad that we got a chance to connect and have uh you know a couple times now and i i absolutely look forward to our next time together thank you again thank you
0: folks Dr. Pedram Shojai, The Urban Monk, go get the book, read it, and don't just read another book. Don't just put another book on your bookshelf and stress about not getting to it. Start reading it, start implementing it. That's when you start feeling better. Pure and simple, right? Take the next step. Take the next necessary step. Your brain will start to feel better, and then you can invest that energy into future good deeds, right, for yourself, for the world. It um, will turn this around one brain at a time. Dr. Perlmutter, thank you so much. We'll see you next time.
1: Talk soon.